everybody, and welcome to the Fortress Comic News, episode 220. I am your only host, Chris. Uh, no guest host this week. Uh, Mike's out of town doing uh, some important international business, and as we say. And uh, so I, I just decided to do it solo. Um, we're going to have a great interview with James Alban, uh English creator living in Scotland um, was a book called the delicacy all about food and the culture in uh, England, which was a lot of fun. It was a great conversation we had. Uh, we talked about the book. We talked about culture. We talked about food. It was, it's, I said it to him and I'll say it again here. It's always great getting a new perspective on the world of comics and kind of opening my horizons a little bit and the stuff that maybe wouldn't be something that as a consumer I would normally jump into, but end up realizing that I really enjoy. And so hopefully you hear from him and you really enjoy the conversation. You check out his work because his art is amazing and the book is a lot of fun. Uh, So we're not going to do a whole lot on news this week. There was one thing I wanted to chat about real quick and I just wanted to get my thoughts out on this because it's so in the moment and so here and now that I feel like it's something that's worth discussing and it's we discussed the impetus of this episodes ago probably a year ago from this episode actually about the uh, issues with Warren Ellis and the the women who came out and the things that he has said to have done and all this stuff. I won't want to get too much into that. What I want to get into today is we had news that Ben Temple, it was Temple 10 or Temple Smith. I think it's Temple 10 uh, announced that they're working on a follow-up to their book fell on his uh, Patreon. And this news blew up for a multitude of reasons. Um, but what I wanted to discuss was kind of the the aftermath of this. I don't think that people's response was out of control in the sense of they had the right to feel like Warren hasn't done enough to earn the right to have, for a second chance. I understand that thought, and I, I sympathize with that thought. What I want to discuss is... Uh, Something we discuss on fairly regular, or at least I discuss very regularly as a personality, which is kind of taking a breath and taking a step back. And uh, my point here is the the center conversation and the the negative thoughts and comments sent towards Image Comics. So when this was announced, everybody, if you go to the Patreon, I don't know if it's still up, but if you go to the Patreon page and you read his post. Uh, ben says, hey, we're working on this and this and that. Uh, and I assume it'll come to image, but we don't know. And that was, that's the key there. We assume it's coming from image. And then later on, I have friends who are old fans of Warren who are subscribed to his mailing list and sent me over what he said after the fact too, where he kind of said, I'm, I'm going to therapy. I'm dealing with some problems, me problems, some issues that I need to get through. Uh, I decided to take on writing this as a part of my therapy. And I did, I sent over to Ben and said, Hey, you know, let's, maybe we can do this again. And also it's important to remember that Ben was one of Warren's biggest critics when this all popped. So I want to bring that back to that. Like Ben said the right things back in, 
back a year ago today. Um, but the whole premise of what he, he wrote in that mailing list was Ben kind of w- went too far. He, he was, this wasn't supposed to be announced. This wasn't supposed to be talked about. This was supposed to be something that we were going to do and just, and talk about and work on in private. And then maybe one day when uh, it's ready and Warren speaking for himself, I'm ready. We can move forward. Um, and then there was what image said, which was basically like until Warren does these things, uh, makes amends with these women and so on and so forth that we are not working with them. So, what I want to do is not necessarily talk about whether what Warren did was good or bad or whatever, because that's not the point I'm trying to make here. Um, I have my issues with what Warren did, and I think the response to Warren's actions were appropriate. But what I want to discuss is the internet culture of jumping down a news story without really giving it time to breathe. And uh, it was something that I immediately looked at and said, like, let's give this a day or two and see how how the pieces lay on the map. And then I'll make my decision on how to talk about it. And I'm glad I did, because, like I said, Ben said, maybe this will be published image. We don't know yet. Uh, Warren said, like, this wasn't even supposed to be talked about. Like, I'm trying to deal with shit in my own life. And I'm trying to make amends to people that I wronged. And I'm trying to improve myself as a human and all these things. Uh, doing what is essentially, I feel, the right thing to do, which is to deal with your problems and then try to make amends. Uh, And it it landed in two ways. One was people started jumping on image. How dare they do this? How dare they? Blah, blah, blah. And it's important to remember, image never announced this. Image never said that they were working with Warren. Image never said any of this stuff. So I felt people were too quick to jump down Image's throat. And Image was correct in putting out the statement they did, which was something along the lines of like, until Warren makes amends and does X, Y, and Z, we are not working with Warren or even discussing working with Warren. I'm fine with that. Uh, But it's important for us to remember just as humans and people, just give it a minute. Let it sit for just a minute and see what the actual game board looks like before we get angry and we get upset. And uh, once again, this is not an ex- this is not excusing Warren's actions. I don't. I hope it's not coming off that way. Uh, second is when <laughs> this one's tough because it's it's impossible to really see this outside of the scope of what ended up happening but i also want people to give warren a chance and what i mean by that is let him do what he needs to do let him talk to the people he needs to talk to and let's see if um i believe the website was so many of us.com if he now goes to so many of us.com and tries to make amends it's tough because now it feels like, well, he's just doing it to get this and that. But because it seems like the announcement of this was an accident, maybe this was the plan all along where he was. And I, I know I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, it's possibly a character flaw, possibly a, a good thing. I feel like it's a good thing, but 
you may feel differently. So by giving him the benefit of the doubt, what I think was going on was he was getting therapy to deal with why he felt like what he was doing was okay. And that's, in my opinion, the appropriate thing to do. And after a while, it was going to be, okay, now that I've attacked my ignorance, I've attacked my demons, I've done the things that I feel like are appropriate for me to do, let's go talk to so many of us.com and talk to these women directly and see if I can at least get get them to understand that like, I know that I made a mistake and that I need to change and do something different and we can possibly move on and see. Uh, I compare it to, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's happened so many times with different athletes and famous figures where they, they've made a mistake. They've gone to Hollywood jail and then, some come back and they don't change. Some come back and they're still an asshole. Some come back and they do good. And it's also a matter of we all got to make our choices. Um, I was never a huge Warren fan, so it'd be tough for me to say like whether or not I would support him if he did all the right things. It does make... I will say one of my favorite series of all time, and I think all of us... Uh, have some affinity for this book is Transmetropolitan, which is a seminal book in comics. So I'm not going to say I'm not a fan. I'm just saying I wasn't one of these standing at the altar of Warren fans. Um, but what I, I want, I think is best for us to do moving forward with uh, Warren in this instance is maybe take a step back because we had a premature announcement. It's very obvious that Image did not make a decision to publish this or is planning on publish the, publishing this, at least from a public perspective. It is always tough to know what people are doing behind the scenes. Um, I don't know anybody that works at Image. I don't know any of the top people at Image. Uh, maybe this was decided and everybody realized, whoops, we screwed up. That's possible too. But yeah, we should all probably just take a step back and say, okay, they they see that something wrong happened or something that shouldn't have happened happened. And now we need to see what Warren does in the coming months, in the coming year, in the coming however long it takes, and uh, then make our decision. So to to kind of summarize what I'm trying to say here is, if you really look at what happened over the past week as a whole, um, and a lot of people, and some of them, I, I don't want to diminish anyone's anger or disappointment either. Uh, some people, especially people that were involved directly with the actions of Warren, had every right to be mad at this and every right to just cringe and to you know, clench their fists right away. I get that. Uh, but if you're like me, which I think is 99% of you, uh, you're on the outside looking in and you may have an opinion on what's going on, but some, this is just a reminder for me personally that sometimes it's better to step back and 
see the, the, the chessboard as a whole as it moves instead of just going straight for the king. Uh, I don't know. I, I wanted to get that out. I hope I was able to express how, how I feel properly about that. Um, my hope and my my feelings are I, I really hope that Warren does find the balance, finds the help he needs and makes amends and uh, is able to use this as an experience to possibly enrich other people and to improve the lives of women inside the industry and to maybe create charity and a support system so that this doesn't happen again to anyone else. Because if he does that, um, at least for me, and I will understand if some people can never forgive him, and I will understand the people involved in particular can never forgive him. But I feel like if he does these things and creates the right charities and tries to help people and tries to stop it from ever happening again, then he will have done the right thing to deserve uh, my patronage, patronage again. Um, but once again, I hope I hope that came across the way I wanted it to. Uh, let me know. Uh, let me know what you think. And uh, I know we on this show don't get political too often. I don't know if that's really political or not. I feel like it's less political and more personal and more how we interact with people as human beings in this world and try to be better and try to be nicer and try to just treat people with the respect and the dignity that they deserve. I hope that's how it came across. Uh, that's how I wanted it to come across. Um, that was a little bit deeper of a conversation, uh, even if it was just me talking, than I thought I would have about this, but I didn't want to get that uh, off my chest. Um, so everybody, all my audio listeners out there, we're going to, after I do some pimping out, we're going to move over to the conversation with James Elbon. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And you check out his book, The Delicacy, because it is really good. Um, you'll listen to that and that'll be the end of the episode. So if you guys want to follow me further, uh, it's Fortress Chris on Twitter. Fortress uh, News Chris on Instagram and the show is Fortress Comics underscore on both Twitter and Instagram and FortressComicNews.com. Um, pretty soon I will have a section up there with all of our affiliate links. If you guys want to support this show and what we're doing here a little bit further, uh, you can go. We already have affiliates with uh, like Geek Grind Coffee and Amazon and uh, Nerd Energy and a few other that are on the website. So you can go there right now and go support us by, you know, buying things through them, especially if you use Amazon. I think we all use Amazon some way. So instead of giving your $20 for your trade of dark Knight returns strictly to Jeff Bezos, uh, do it through my link and then send like a dollar over to me taking a dollar away from Jeff Bezos. Uh, <laughs> But I'll have that up probably next week, so I'll talk more about that next week. And uh, if you're enjoying the show, five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. If they have a rating system, thumbs up, whatever. Uh, give us a positive one. Help us get into more ears uh, to talk with more people. 
And uh, if you're watching on the YouTube, which you're not, because this is the audio only part, so I'm not even going to bother with that. If you like YouTube stuff, go over to youtube.com slash Fortress Comics. Um, I do my top five every week. I do the interviews are broken out every week there. We do some, uh, the news section of the show is broken out there. Every once in a while, I'll do a quick video on the news. Uh, we did one on Vanish, which Mike and I will talk more about next week. Uh, so I, I think I'm doing some cool stuff over there. I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. And uh, yeah, so that's everything I have for my end of the show. Next week, Mike will be back for episode 221. And uh, we have a lot of news to go over because we did not talk about the news this week. And we are also going to be joined by a very special guest who may or may not have turned the Avengers into mech warriors. I'm not one to say, but we'll find out next week. Thank you all so much for listening. And uh, enjoy this interview with James. All right, everybody. We have another very special guest for you all this week. Uh, a English creator uh, outside of our normal scope of uh, creators. But I'm happy to talk to James Elbon. Welcome, James. Hi, how's it going? It's going good over here. How's life over in Europe right now? Or in Scotland in particular, I should say. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. We've been, uh, it's, it's coming up to kind of 18 months of uh, lockdown restrictions in various forms now. So it's a good time to be uh, sitting at a studio desk and drawing graphic novel pages every single day, but it's a bad time for being uh, out in the pub or going out dancing, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we've been lucky over here. So for you, I'm in upstate New York, if you, if you have any idea where that is in the U.S. Um, and we actually just recently started opening up because vaccines have been pretty plentiful here um luckily i was able to get one as well so it's starting to get a little back to normal over here but still we're still in that phase of like people are aren't 100 ready for it it's an interesting time to live yeah it's very much the same over here we've had especially in scotland we've had fairly strict restrictions but it's kept the rate kind of relatively low so we've been you know touch wood like we've been relatively safe compared to especially down in parts of england um have been a lot worse affected but uh, yeah i'm very much looking forward to you know now things are starting to open up little by little and the rules are getting more and more relaxed so yeah looking forward to everything being open again being able to go out and enjoy the town well, i guess a little just life conversation for a second we're starting to do uh cons over here i'm actually going to be doing one here in august all right have has there even been conversation over there with that kind of stuff? Or are you guys still just like, let's just hold off? <laughs> I think people are sort of edging into it. I think uh, tentatively um, the Thought Bubble uh, Festival, which happens up in Yorkshire, uh, that's going ahead this year, I've heard. Um, but there's still a lot of, uh, uh, you know, there's a little uncertainty around things, you know. So my new book just launched um, a couple of weeks ago. We hoped to do an in-person event in, you know, in bookshop, get everyone together, do signings and all that sort of thing. But at the last minute, unfortunately, we, we felt it was a little safer to do things on Zoom. Yeah, it's, it's a tough decision. I mean, yeah, it, you got to do what's best, but I, I miss just going out and meeting people and talking to people and shaking hands and kissing babies and doing all that fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I'm very much the same. Like, I know the stereotype of a graphic novelist is often, you know, introverted people who prefer to be alone and work alone on these things. But I love nothing more than going to, 
you know, in previous years, going to things like uh, TCAF up in Toronto and like meet a hundred people in a day, like chat to loads of people, go out and party in the evening. Like that's all, that's all like the dream for me. And it's such a shame to like not have had that opportunity. Yeah, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Yeah. So let's let's start here. Um, give us kind of the your origin story. Were you always a big comics person? And if so, like when along the line were you like, hey, I could probably make these things? It's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting story, actually. Growing up, I wasn't really a comics person. Um, I grew up in a uh, in a small village in the northeast of Scotland, in like a really rural area. So there weren't really kind of comic comic book shops around. I wasn't really sort of attached to that culture. But I was into, like, as a teenager, I was into a lot of, like, sort of comic-adjacent things. So into a lot of video games, into, like, sort of tabletop games, that sort of thing. Um, but it wasn't until I actually went to art school. I went to Edinburgh College of Art um, in the capital city of Scotland. And uh, I studied illustration there. And I've always really enjoyed writing. I've always really enjoyed sort of reading novels. And I think it was maybe at the start of art school, discovering books like uh, The Watchman, obviously it's this classic that everyone is drawn to, and um, books like Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi. Uh, for me, that really sort of, that was like a wake-up call because I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed drawing and it was suddenly this obvious thing of, oh, why didn't I put these two things together? And, and you know, I could try, I could try doing these, telling these amazing stories that like these amazing authors are telling. It was, you know, I remember it being, you know, as a sort of, 18, 19 year old student discovering sort of comics and graphic novels for the first time and finding it really, really exciting. So that was sort of my path into it. Came a little bit later than some people who, you know, really get into comics as teenagers. But uh, yeah, I think it was through art school and through studying illustration that I got that uh, kind of connection. Well, and with that, like we talked about on the show quite a few times how um, I myself, like my path in the comics was like watching Batman animated series and all these things that we have over here um, and how it's always been kind of part of the culture, even though some people don't really recognize that it's always been a part of the culture. So for you over there, like were these things around, like did, did you know about superheroes or comic books or is it like, what is the, the scene over there? I think certainly growing up, I didn't know. And this is probably probably mostly because I grew up in like this, this rural area in the countryside. I, I knew, you know, I, I like knew who Batman and Superman were and stuff, but there wasn't like an entry point to getting into the comics. Similarly with sort of, I don't know, with sort of um, animated series or like anime things. You know, I had one friend when I was growing up who had, uh, you know, had like uh, cable TV and he could watch like Dragon Ball Z all the time. And I was like, what is this amazing looking thing? But like, I didn't watch enough of it to sort of have a sense of what the story was, like who the characters were. You just catch like an episode here and there. So at that time, I wasn't sort of, I wasn't so connected to it. I think that maybe, I mean, this, this might be unfair to say, because obviously in the UK, there are a lot of people who are really passionate about comics. But my impression is that the comic and graphic novel world is bigger, both in the USA and Canada, and also bigger in France and Belgium. And that the UK is sort of a, you know, we don't just we, we don't maybe quite have the same like core readership or the same sort of market for uh, of comic readers that, you know, that we do in other countries. I mean, there are like there's a lot of really good British graphic novelists, British illustrators, um, but there's maybe fewer publishers as well. I mean, certainly I'm published by Top Shelf Comics, who are, you know, based over in the USA. Um, and, you know, I've always had a great relationship with Top Shelf, but I think 
one of the things that drew me as well instinctively to an American publisher was that there aren't that many British publishers. And the ones that we have are obviously great. There's a lot of really good British books being published, but there's not the same maybe breadth of British publishers that there are in the US. Yeah, I mean, just for someone who's been doing this for a while and has been in comics for a while, it the only one that comes to mind is really 2000 AD. Yeah, there's, there's there's things like Jonathan Cape, who are a um, an imprint of Penguin Random House, who are very much on the sort of literary comics end of the spectrum. Um, uh, indie indie publishers like Nobrow, who are quite big, but like, you know, they, they produce a lot of really amazing work. But at the same time, if there's only a limited number of publishers and they're only pu- publishing a limited number of books per year, I think especially if you're like a new graphic novelist and you're, you know, you've got your first script or your first like story idea, it can be difficult to get your foot in the door with like one of the few publishers and be like, publish my work. Yeah. We're here. You just drive down the street and there's someone publishing comics. Yeah. <laughs> <feels yeah>. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm always amazed, you know, whenever I've been to, uh, you know, any like uh, festival or convention or whatever in America, I'm amazed by the amount of like, you know, ama- amazing, like high level, big publishers, but also the number of like really cool indie comics that are being published. Yeah, and things like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, stuff like that has really just blown that wide open over yeah. here, at least. So let's let's jump in a little bit into the book that you're here to talk about, The Delicacy. Um, let's start with, like, what is the... Explain to my listeners and viewers, what is The Delicacy? So The Delicacy uh, tells the story of two brothers who leave... Um, their sort of rural, remote island on the west coast of Scotland and decide to move to London to open a restaurant. Uh, Their plan is that the older brother, Rowan, is going to kind of run a market garden. He's going to produce high-quality, delicious, organic, you know, vegetables to be then cooked and served by Tulip, his younger brother, at their restaurant in London. Um, Initially, the the plan sort of doesn't quite, you know, the the restaurant doesn't really take off. This, This idea that they're bringing wholesome, organic healthy food to what they see as this like corrupted big polluted city and doesn't initially catch on you know people are already in a big city like london or a big city like new york people are already very familiar with organic food and there's not enough wow factor but then on rowan's farm they discover this new species of mushroom growing and the mushroom turns out to be this insatiably delicious fantastic success and that you know blows the lid right off the restaurant uh the younger brother tulip quickly becomes much wealthier, much busier, and he sort of starts riding this wave of like wealth and luxury and success. And the more he rides this wave, the less he wants to get off, the more he's willing to sort of sacrifice his initial principles of wholesome organic food to just keep the, you know, the fame and the money coming in. So that's the sort of setup of the book, which uh, leads the two brothers into a rift or into sort of a, an emotional disaster. So yeah, the first thing that really attracted me to the book was the what you're talking about it's food comics are very common in like manga but when you talk about the more traditional american market you don't see it a whole lot so i guess what i want to ask is like are you also a foodie is that why that this uh kind of idea was drawn to you yeah absolutely i mean for me it seemed like a really natural thing to write about because food is very much something that i mean obviously everybody eats like there's no getting away from that and i think there's a lot that can be said about food, both in a sort of almost from any angle. You can talk about like high class, fancy, expensive, expensive restaurants that are really posh. You can talk about like simple takeout food. You can talk about simple home cooking. You can talk about food as a sort of 
class status or as a way to like show off your wealth and at the same time you can talk about food as just this functional thing that you need to do to live and all of these sort of elements of the different ways to approach food are we concerned with our health are we concerned with you know luxury and expensive heavy tastes are we concerned with showing off are we concerned with just having something to keep our bodies alive all of these things are interesting themes to explore and i've personally always like i'm a real sort of restaurant foodie i love going to restaurants um, and i've also always done a lot of observational drawing so i'll go to a restaurant or go to a bar and i've got a little sketchbook in my pocket and while i'm waiting for my food to come i'll just sit and draw the other diners or draw the especially if it's a restaurant with like an open kitchen you know draw the chefs working away which is really fun for me so the idea of drawing a book set in restaurants and set between the um the sort of luxurious surroundings that the diners are sitting in and then the extremely hard-working chaotic surroundings that the chefs are cooking in is like a really fun contrast so yeah the subject matter of restaurants is like a really natural one for me and something that I find really fun and hopefully you know anyone who enjoys eating out or anyone who sort of thinks about their sort of uh, the food culture that they're in uh, you know will find it interesting as well well it's it's something that we almost take advantage of a little bit where like food is a direct I see food as a direct lens into somebody's culture because, like, you can even inside the States, I know I have friends who are chefs and have gone to culinary school. And they will they went to culinary school and they told people, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but they've told people about the upstate New York garbage plate. And people are just like, what is this thing? Like, And why do you call it a garbage plate? What is a garbage plate? This sounds amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Uh, it is. So it is mac salad and then some sort of potato, usually home fries. You can do French fries. Sometimes you do beans. You can mess around with it a little bit. But the basic idea is the mac salad and the fries. And then you put some sort of meat over top of it. We usually do burgers. And then we put a meat sauce over it. And then from there, it's your own imagination. You, you can throw ketchup, mustard, whatever you want on it. But it's it literally looks like you just end up cutting it all up, mixing it together. And that's where it gets the name. Because it looks like a plate of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but it tastes amazing. And it's the uh, most... Yeah. It's a very American thing, but uh, it's just one of those things where people don't really appreciate that much the culture that comes through food. So you're coming from Scotland. You're talking about a restaurant in uh, London. I'm assuming that we're going to deal with that. We deal with a lot of uh, England based foods or culture in that way. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, it's funny because I think internationally, Britain sort of uh, doesn't have a great reputation for its food culture, especially within Europe. You know, we're right next to, you know, France, Italy, Spain, these cultures, with, these countries with incredible food. And the, um, you know, you may know this, this, the sort of stereotypical, you know, mocking name that French people have for British people is uh, le roast beef, like roast beef, because it's like all we eat, roast beef, fish and chips. Um and sort of British food is maybe traditionally known for being quite bland. Um, but then I think in reality, one of the things that makes especially food in sort of urban parts of Britain in big cities really exciting is, you know, a place like London is so culturally diverse. And actually British food at its best is when we combine foods from all sorts of different countries um, that, you know, people have come to Britain from or like there's a slightly darker side to the sort of cultural history because also a lot of it comes from colonialism and that we you know hundreds of years ago invaded these countries that has left like a lasting legacy but i think that food is a really interesting way to explore this sort of cross-pollination of cultures 
you know, that exists in Britain or exists in other European nations. And I think that sort of cross-pollination of all sorts of different influences, whether it's, uh, you know, French influences of French food and Italian food in Britain, uh, influences of South Asian food or East Asian food, they're all really, really interesting. And they're all really, um, you know, it's what makes British food culture in London especially really, really exciting. Yeah, I mean, living in America, we do have our our few th- barbecues the big one everybody knows barbecue mm-hmm. and barbecue is worldwide but like when you think barbecue you usually think southern america but most of our food is the same way it's a, a cultural appropriation of different people's foods yeah. and different people's cultures and bring it in the fancy word we use around here is fusion so when you go to mm-hmm. an asian fusion restaurant it's us mixing things together so it's always it's it's interesting to go into a big city and see all these these great foods yeah. and cultures absolutely and i think for me that was an interesting um sort of uh sort of cornerstone of the approach for the book because the two main characters have come from rural scotland and especially somewhere in the you know in the north of scotland the climate is so cold that there's you're fairly limited in the sort of produce you can grow you know you can't grow your tomatoes or grapes or you know these sorts of um these things that make things like italian food really exciting um scottish food is uh you know, maybe leans fairly heavily on the turnips and the potatoes and things. Um, And so for the characters arriving in London and seeing this sort of uh, multitude of different cultures and fusions and uh, food from different countries and from their limited background, countries that they themselves haven't even heard of, um, is meant to be one of the really sort of exciting cornerstones of the book. And, you know, hopefully a, a way to look at the excitement that can come from sharing food and sharing food culture, which I think is really, really important. Yeah, and then I think the the second thing that drew me into the book when I was reading it was the art. Um, obviously, you're you're an artist, so uh, when you're when you're drawing this book and you have this very, I I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't even know how to describe your style. It's almost it's not quite it's not watercolors. Are you using charcoal pens for this? No, it's actually watercolor and gouache. So you've got a bit of that watercolour look, but the gouache is giving a sort of heavier, more opaque sort of colour form to it, I think. Okay, so that's where I'm getting both of those from then. So I was on the right track. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think if if I were to draw only in watercolour, it it can end up looking a little bit light. You know, it's difficult to get into these really dark, bold tones, whereas gouache, because it's that bit more opaque, really, like, gives you that extra thing. But for me, what's really important, because I'm... I'm not at all digitally minded. I'm really sort of using a computer for me is always a bit of a headache. So I try and do as much, absolutely as much of the page as I can just in real life. So I draw it about 50% bigger than it appears in the, in the finished comic. And I just draw the entire page, you know, panel borders and all, um, and try and make it as exactly as it will appear in the, in the finished book, um, to avoid having to do any sort of digital recoloring or sort of recomposing using Photoshop or anything. Because for me, that's always a little bit of a headache. Whereas, you know, drawing organically and putting things directly on the page is really delightful and really exciting. And I, I wonder how much of this you studied, and I'm assuming you did in college. But your your faces, like even when it's a background character and it's a simple like three or four lines, you always are able to show some sort of emotion through the faces, and that that's something that's very rare, at least that I see in comics. And uh, maybe you want to speak on that, on how emotion really was important to you in this book, assuming it was. 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think I think with all storytelling, really, the core of the 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 crux of the story has to be some sort of emotional conflict or some sort of emotional state that has to be relatable to the reader. You know, whether or not the book is set in a restaurant or if it's set in a you know sort of Lord of the Rings style fantasy land or whether it's set in space, the characters need to have some sort of emotional interaction that any reader can can sort of relate to, and any and then. It's an emotional reaction that gets extrapolated to make a dramatic story. You know, not everyone has has opened a restaurant in London and then fallen out with their brother over a conflict of wealth and greed and jealousy. But everyone has had some sort of relationship with someone where they felt a little jealous at times or a little conflicted at times. And I think that taking those emotions and sort of extrapolating them into the into the kind of backbone of the story is what makes what what leads to writing that resonates with people um in terms of putting the emotion in faces yeah it really comes from my art school training which was i did my undergrad at edinburgh college of art and then did a postgrad at the royal drawing school in london um which both of which involved a huge amount of sort of observational drawing so as i say i'm sort of going to bars and restaurants and cafes or just going out in the street with a sketchbook and if you're drawing people just walking down the street you have to get the sort of essence of a figure in like 30 seconds or something, just as they walk past, you just get a few lines. And that really taught me about how to like show a person's emotion or show their form or show their movement in as few lines as possible. And I really think that that's sort of, that's sort of like just go out for an afternoon with a sketchbook, draw as many people as you possibly can, do it as quickly as possible. Like don't stress about the final look, but just, just sort of have that rigorous sort of reiterative approach is like, was the best sort of education in drawing that I ever had. So, you know, that's my number one recommendation for sort of aspiring illustrators. Doing that over these past 18 months must have been tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people are a lot more, uh, you know, over the last 18 months, there were a lot more sort of quiet, empty landscapes and a lot less busy bars in my sketchbook. <laughs> <laughs> well that was one thing that we missed as just humans uh being able to look someone in the face when uh i don't know how you guys handled it over there but a lot of over here was the the mask wearing a mask when you go out and so half of people's faces were just we didn't see them yeah which is an interesting experience for me because then you're looking people more in the eyes and really trying to like get emotion through the eyes it was fascinating yeah. but I, I definitely found myself you know, look at, thinking I'm looking nicely and smiling at someone, but I'm wearing a mask. And so it looks like, you know, they can't see my smile. They think I've just got some sort of really intense, you know, stare going on or something. But um, I, it's funny, I was just saying to my friends the other day, actually, one of the things I've sort of missed is um, it's almost having like life going on in the background. Suddenly with the restrictions here, it's been possible to kind of go out. You can go out and meet, I think, up to four other people or up to six other people outdoors. You can go to the park and sit at a picnic bench and just chat to someone, see your friends on a kind of one-to-one -one basis. But I've missed hanging out with friends in a bar and there being all these other people and all this other sort of chatter going on around. I really like that sort of, if there's a lull in your conversation, you can see, oh, you know, someone's, you know, there's people flirting at the bar. There's someone who's had a bit too much, who's staggering over a bit, you know, people <laughs> are watching the football and like yelling and, Having that sort of background drama going on, I, I didn't realize how much I missed it until it was suddenly taken away from me. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So um, I, I was noticing earlier, too, uh, like Delicacy that is out now. Um, people can order at their local comic shops. Um, and actually, do you, here in America, you can order at local comic shops. I'm sure it's available in uh, Amazon. And other. Do you guys have like independent local comic shops over there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a whole sort of network of them in the UK. And then also, 
I think because in a sense the delicacy is also more in the sort of there's a crossover into the kind of literary world. I suddenly find, you know, a lot of it's also stopped by a lot of kind of more independent literary bookshops um, who kind of branch into graphic novels. Um, so there's a nice there's a nice crossover there, I think. But yeah, I mean, I really believe in sort of supporting independent retailers. So I definitely encourage people to, you know, find their independent comic shops and, you know, support the support the independent shops and their kind of immediate communities. Yeah, uh, as much as I love the comic shops, if you have a local comic shop, support them because that's the bread and butter of what we do here. But local bookshops here in America, man, they're they're a dying breed. I, I have mm -hmm. one in my hometown. It's still amazing that it's been 40 years since they opened that they're still around because even watch the big guys, the, the Borders bookstores yeah. and all them, they can't support it. Um. You also had two other books on here that I saw, A Shining Beacon and Her her Bark, Her Bite. Yeah. Are those also published by uh, Top Shelf? Yeah, absolutely. So Her Bark and Her Bite was actually my first, uh, that was my first comic. That was um, my sort of final project from my postgrad in the Royal Drawing School down in London. Um, so yeah, I was really lucky that uh, I made the whole comic as part of this, uh, as part of this course, which really you know, it was a really exciting sort of masterclass in uh, in writing and drawing. And then, yeah, I was lucky enough that Chris at Top Shelf Comics was interested in it and uh, decided to publish it. So that was a really, like, nice first step into um, uh, into the world of, you know, publishing graphic novels. Um, and similarly, that's a book that very much is about, like, uh, this sort of this sort of delightful world of people going out to restaurants and going out to bars and partying and spending too much money and living luxurious life, which is, you know, so much fun to illustrate. And uh, so is Top Shelf really the only publisher you've worked with so far? Yeah, so far, yes. I, I mean, in my other work as an illustrator, when I'm not writing, I've also worked with the Folio Society, who are a uh, publisher here in Britain, who published sort of uh, classic, classic novels, um, sort of in nice hardback editions with like beautiful illustrations. So I've been lucky enough to do some really interesting illustration projects with them as well. I think for me, illustrating that sort of classic literature is always a really nice sort of callback to almost like the traditions of writing. I was lucky enough to do um, uh, illustrations for Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, uh, you know, which is like one of the greatest novels in American literature. Yeah. And I think having a connection, being allowed to sort of draw for such a great novel is a kind of really nice reminder of sort of where I've come from as a as an illustrator and like where our whole English language writing tradition comes from and you know it's a lovely lovely kind of project to work on as well that's really cool yeah uh <laughs> the best laid plan of mice and men I think I say yeah. at least once a week yep <laughs> so yeah you've done all this really cool stuff uh, obviously the comics with the uh, top shelf I'm actually really fascinated with the doing drawings for classic literature I wish they did more of that over here. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's always a shame. I think back in the, up until maybe the sort of 1910s, it was, you know, almost all adult novels were illustrated and it would just be the standard thing, have a few, you know, nice black and white ink drawings in there. And it's a shame that they've sort of moved. I think probably this in the sort of interwar period, publishers moved away from having illustrated books because of the expense. But it's a shame to have that sort of austerity. You know, it's really exciting to have good illustrations in, adult novels as well and you know i mean i feel there's been a real renaissance in like beautiful book cover design so hopefully it will move to beautiful illustrations inside novels as well but we'll see yeah people are getting back into the especially the hardbound the the, the gold-plated 
uh, editions of books, and it's yeah, it's, it's nice. Yeah, I think there was a time I remember sort of um, uh, yeah, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, there was this sort of mass panic that the Kindle was going to destroy the the printed book, and that people. I actually remember my. Uh, my family for Christmas one year, like everyone got each other Kindles. And then Christmas the following year, everybody just got each other printed books because sending somebody a downloadable PDF on a Kindle like isn't a very nice present. Whereas I think maybe it, it caused people to appreciate what they really like about books. That like there's a beautiful physicality to like holding a well-crafted object, holding like a nice book in your hands and having it to sort of cherish is really nice. Whether it's a comic book, graphic novel, you know, an illustrated novel. But yeah, people like to have that sort of... Uh, you know, beautifully designed uh, physical book in their hands. And I think it's quite nice to sort of be reminded of that, really. Yeah. It's funny how history repeats itself, because I remember that, and now we're going through that today with comicsology and digital comics, and the, the comics, the printed comic is going to die, and I'm just like, I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, we've all... Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've all lived through cycles of this, you know. I think that as long as people you know, love seeing physical things in their hands, love, love holding a comic and cherishing it. You know, there's, it's not a feeling that can be replaced. Yeah. So uh, everybody, the, the delicacy as well as all of James's other work, I'm sure is available on Amazon, your local comic shops and your local bookstores. Uh, I'll also have a link down below for, uh, I actually don't know if this app has made it over to Europe or not, but for my American listeners, the Pullbox app with the link to it where you can just subscribe and send your orders straight to your local comic shop um, and a link to all of James's stuff. But other than your website and top shelf, do you have like any social media that you want people to follow to keep up with you? Yeah, if anyone wants to uh, follow me on Instagram, then I'm at uh, jamesalban.illustration. Oh, uh, I'm used to people following that on Twitter. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm not on, not on Twitter anymore. I just, my, my sensitive soul can't take the arguments. Yeah, Twitter's tough. Uh, we shouldn't be on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> but James, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, it's always nice to get a new perspective on the world of comics and uh, meet some awesome people. So I appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully yeah, we well, can thanks. do this again someday. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show.